0: Hi, you handsome. Come to join the party.
1: Hey, party people. Welcome to the Patrama Party, where we get low, get low, get low. But like, in the sad way. <laughs> So grab your booty shorts and your antidepressants and let's get into it. I'm your host, Remy Ramirez, and this week is my 50th fucking episode, y'all. This is so huge. And I just want to take a minute to thank all of you who've taken the time to reach out to me and let me know how the pod has impacted you. You have no idea, honestly, what it means to me. I, I just genuinely feel so lucky to share these moments with all of you, And I, and I want to thank you for supporting me and keeping me going. Like, I don't know, I'm getting a little um, choked up talking about it, but doing this pod the last couple of years has been a total joy. And it's also been a lot, you know, like emotionally to run a one woman trauma show and juggle all the editing and posting and planning and all the things I've learned so much in the process. So I just want to thank everyone who's encouraged me along the way. Connecting with all of you has made this experience really special and meaningful for me. So thank you for writing alongside me for 50 episodes. I can't. It's so fucking cool. This week, we're talking about trauma bonding. If you look up the definition of trauma bonding, a lot of what you'll see, in fact, almost all of what you'll see talks about narcissism, domestic violence, relationships with abusers. So for example, there's this definition. It says Trauma bonding is a psychological response to abuse. It occurs when the abused person forms a connection or relationship with the person who abuses them. In these instances, you'll sometimes hear a reference to Stockholm syndrome as in coming to sympathize with the person who with the person who is abusing you. I read another definition that describes trauma bonding as a traumatic response to a terrifying chronic stressor. And what was cool about that definition is that it was intentionally written to emphasize that the perpetrator of abuse is the one we need to pathologize. We don't want to pathologize the victim of abuse by saying that they're showing a dysfunctional attachment, but instead that they're showing a normal attachment response to an ongoing terrifying stressor. So I thought that was interesting. But Both of those definitions get at the same thing, which is that trauma bonding involves an abuser of some kind. So that's one lens we can look through when we're talking about trauma bonding. And for those of us who grew up around narcissism or borderline personality disorder or other mental health disorders, we almost certainly experienced trauma bonding in those relationships and learned how attachment worked through a person who was chronically terrifying and stressful and also simultaneously our source of love, comfort, and safety. Another way that trauma bonding can look, though, is two people coming together with similar trauma or complementary traumas and bonding through their shared trauma rather than forming bonds that are based on an emotionally healthy foundation. Anxiously attached folks bonding to avoidantly attached folks and vice versa is a great example of a trauma bond. It's not exactly an abusive relationship per se. So it doesn't fall into that traditional bucket of trauma bonding, but it is bonding that's rooted in trauma rather than healthy connection. So that's how it can look. And to help us get clear on the impacts it has and how we can start the healing process. I'm so happy to welcome clinical psychologist, Dr. Lindsay O'Shea to the show. Hi, Lindsay. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh my God. I'm so happy you're here. To get us started, let's chat a little bit about your astrology. You sent me a screenshot of your chart, which is so fun. You're a Sagittarius like me. Mm. Yeah. So we love this. We're here for the fire. You have a moon in Capricorn, which I cannot emphasize this enough. I see that in so many of my guests on this show. The moon rules the emotional element and Capricorn loves organization, order, structure, discipline, So this placement seeks to create order and structure within the emotional realm, which of course makes so much for therapists. But what really caught my attention in your chart is that you have four placements in the transformational sign of Scorpio. Scorpio is the sign that most lends itself to transformation, all in your 12th house, which is the house that oversees the subconscious and mental health, among other things. So first of all, Having Scorpio in your 12th house is really intense because the 12th house is already a house that's emotionally intense. It's ruled by Pisces, a water sign. So there's a lot of depth and feeling in the 12th house. And then you have Scorpio there, also a water sign. Scorpio is about deep change, lots of shedding and being reborn. So already this is a really powerful house for you. And then on top of it, You have Mars there, which is about ambition and drive. You have Pluto, which is about power, money, and the shadow experience. So trauma lives under Pluto's rule. And then you have your ascendant conjunct Mercury here, conjunct meaning together because they're both at 16 degrees of Scorpio. So in other words, you have the planet of thoughts, ideas, and communication, Mercury, teaming up with the placement that oversees your life path and your relationship to the outside world, your ascendant, both in Scorpio, which is about transformation in the 12th house, which is about mental health. So just looking at your chart, it feels like you are definitely on the right path in terms of being a therapist that feels very destined. But I'm curious, having all of these placements here, did you always want to be a therapist? Was that something you knew from a young age? Or did that sort of creep up on you later in life?
0: Well, first off, I'm glad to know that I'm in the right profession, as- astrologically speaking. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like oftentimes a lot of us therapists, we're kind of parentified children. So we take on this role as kids. And then somewhere along the way, we start to get training in it and go to grad school. And then we heal that part of ourselves so that we can help other people. So I feel like I was kind of, I guess, destined to be in this position based on my family dynamics but I love it. And it's absolutely an honor and a privilege to be there with people as they grow and struggle and process and heal and figure out what works in their life and what doesn't.
1: Yeah. And man, I can't tell you how thankful we are that y'all are out there doing that work. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I have two therapists and I am so grateful. Okay, cool. I'm going to dive into my experience on this topic. And while I do that, feel free to jump in with thoughts, feelings, you know, winning lottery numbers. If you have any of those, (laughs) that would be cool. Or you can just chill out, eat cheese, plan a road trip, whatever you want to do. Either way at the end, I'll turn some questions over to you. How does that sound? Sounds great. Families have a lot going on.
0: with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Cool. Here we go.
1: So I'll start with childhood. My mom is the person I trauma bonded with the most, and it's the relationship where I got most comfortable with trauma bonding. My mom was extremely emotionally unpredictable, and she still can be. I want to preface by saying that my mom was severely abused and as a result suffers with her own mental health struggles. And I think a lot of us can relate to that story that our parents or caregivers came from abuse. So what that looked like in our home when I was super little was that my mom would explode with rage, often threatening to spank us and or, you know, actually spanking us. And then she would sob and ask for our forgiveness as we got older, the sobbing part of the cycle stopped and instead it would look like she would have a rage meltdown that was really terrifying. And then she would be like cool as a cucumber. And we would sort of be expected to get on board with that roller coaster, right? To cry and cower when she was enraged and then to be happy and upbeat when she had sort of like emotionally recovered herself. And then we could have a good time together. And, and then that was how we bonded. I remember one time, I think I must have been nine or 10, my mom went crazy with rage because a knife was missing. It was a a really nice chopping knife and she couldn't find it. And she was screaming and slamming cupboards and threatening us with what would happen if we didn't find it. She was convinced we'd lost it somehow, which was a really helpless feeling for me because I was scared of big knives. So I didn't really use it. But that, you know, that wasn't important to her in that moment. In that moment, the narrative was, you guys lost this knife. You girls fuck up my life in so many ways. I'm sick and tired of it. You better pray that you find it or else. So I'm beside myself. I'm freaking out. I'm sobbing. I'm terrified. I'm looking everywhere for that knife in the back of all the drawers, in the cabinets, in the pantry, everywhere. My mom had gone upstairs, leaving behind this sort of looming thread of like, you better find it. And I can't find it anywhere. So I collapse on the floor because I'm sobbing so hard that I can't stand up anymore. Like my body was, was like kind of breaking down. And when I sort of like melted onto the floor, I looked up and through my tears, I saw that the knife had fallen off the counter and was wedged between the cabinet and the refrigerator. So I'm elated. I pull it out and I run upstairs with it, which, you know, in retrospect, not a chill idea to run with a huge fucking chopping knife while you're emotionally overwhelmed. But I wanted to show my mom that I found it so that she would calm down and everything could be okay. And I would feel safe again. In my mind, the absence of the knife was the thing that had like hurt her so deeply and so badly because it was further proof to my mom that we were messing up her life. She would say things like, I could have been really successful if it hadn't been for you girls and stuff like that. So this knife incident is just more for her to throw in that pile of life would be better without you. And I should also say part of this trauma bonding story, I'm just going to like pan out for a minute, was that that story of um, my life would have been so much better without you was also always paired with stuff like you're the best thing that ever happened to me. So again, just a lot of like mixed messages. Okay, back to the knife. So finding the knife for me was sort of, being like, proving to my mom, like, look, we're not so bad. Everything's okay. That was my energy. I found the knife. So now life can be okay now. But when I got upstairs, my mom was laughing on the phone with her friend as if nothing had happened, as if she hadn't been screaming at us, as if she hadn't threatened us, as if she hadn't been slamming cabinets. It was a totally different energy within a matter of like 10 or 15 minutes. So you know, this is a trait that's common in certain mental health disorders. They can cycle through a whole roller coaster of emotions in the span of, you know, an hour sometimes. Anyway, I climbed on my mom's bed and handed her the knife and she was like, "Oh, thanks, Ram." and then went back to her conversation. So, a couple things here. And maybe there are pieces that y'all relate to or maybe you relate to the whole shebang, but let's kind of break it down. For starters, Where's the trauma bonding early in my life involved a lot of post abuse tears. And I'm sorry, I'm such a bad mom. And then me being five and being like, you're not a bad mom. You're a great mom. I love you so much. A lot of reassuring my mom and building her confidence back up after she'd been abusing us. As I got older, it looked like abuse is happening. Mom is losing it okay, wait, now everything is fine. We're having a good time. We're laughing. We're sort of amnesiacs about what was just going on. So that was the first thing. These two ways that the mood would dramatically shift after the abuse. The other thing I want to name is that these dramatic shifts required a very specific dynamic from me either way. And that was that my mom be the focus. Either I was reassuring her Or I was pretending to not be a total wreck so that we could be happy and lighthearted and, you know, laughing. Whatever the case, I was tuned into her. She wasn't tuned into me. The added thing was, at least when I was young, even though I was sort of expected to protect my mom's feelings after her behavior was abusive by being like, you're a great mom. Don't cry. Everything's fine. At least that scenario involved my mom having some remorse and recognition that she was hurting us. But for some reason, as I got older, that really dissipated into this kind of like total vacancy around my feelings in the situation. There was no apology, no crying, no interest at all in how the outburst had impacted me. So in that case, the bonding really requi- required me hiding my feelings repressing them, compartmentalizing them so that we could both be upbeat and happy together and bond that way. I'll bring my dad into this just to say that there really was no bonding with my dad. He was mean and distant for the most part. He also raged in a really similar way to my mom, where he would just kind of unleash this unmanageable anger on us that scared me to no end. He was super unempathetic and also hypercritical. One time he asked me if I wanted to go play catch because I had joined a softball team. This is when I was 11. And I was like overjoyed because my dad had never asked to spend one-on-one time with me. And when we got home, his girlfriend asked, how was it you guys? And he was like, eh, she throws like a girl. So not a lot of bonding going on with my dad. What I will say is that my dad would be distant and mean when we were physically together And then when I would go back to California to be with my mom again, he would write me these long letters that I'm pretty sure he would write when he was like either really drunk or really high. And they would be all about how he wanted me to know that I wasn't alone. And if I ever felt alone to remember, I wasn't alone. And all this, you know, weird drunk shit that was, first of all, totally inappropriate for a 12 year old or whatever age I was. And secondly, a total 180 from how he was with me in person, just like suddenly this totally different person from what I was used to, which was in a way similar to my mom's cycle. So, what it did was create this feeling in me that my dad was actually a really sensitive person underneath the surface. Yes, he was mean to me in person, but underneath all of that, he was a loving, sweet, sensitive guy. If I could just figure out how to access that part of him, because I was probably the one who was doing something wrong. So it's its own kind of trauma bonding, but it super set me up to adopt that mentality that like, oh, even though you're a dick on the surface, you're probably really sweet and vulnerable and kind underneath, like to adopt that once I started dating. So let's talk about dating. For me, dating was really easy and healthy, and I never had any issues with it. <laughs> no, that's incorrect. Dating was a hellscape. Jason, Chucky, fucking whoever the Nightmare on Elm Street guy was, just like a bad dream I couldn't wake up from. Some Jekyll and Hyde. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. Uh huh. All all of the nightmares. <laughs> and, and let me start by saying this: this is something I realized recently. My therapist asked me what loneliness meant to me recently, and I really thought about that. And what I realized was that loneliness to me means not having a person I can go to while I'm in breakdown, not having that person or those people who I feel safe enough with to be vulnerable during those moments when I'm in the darkness. For me even if I have friends who you know we have fun together or friends who I can talk to about my breakdown after it's over which definitely is um important and it's I've really benefited from that those relationships won't fully satiate my loneliness I need the person or people who can create space for me while I'm in that space of emotional breakdown right like while I'm crying and freaking out and when I realize that it helped me understand why I grew up feeling so lonely. I always had friends. I was really outgoing and social. I got along really well with my mom when I was growing up. For the most part, I got along as best one could hope, you know, with my dad. But I was so lonely. And now I understand that was because with the kind of bonding I was having with my mom in particular, right, this trauma bonding, the attention was pretty consistently on her emotional needs. I was hyper vigilant of and responding to her emotional state, but no one was paying attention to my emotional state. During my childhood, you know, my mom didn't say to me, Remy, I'd really love to hear about how this is making you feel. What's coming up for you? How are you doing? What do you need right now so that, so that I can show up for you, right? Like that was not the conversation nor was there any like iteration of that when it came to the temperature in the room the focus was pretty much always on my mom or even my sister sometimes because my sister would rage also but not on me i was very much the empath and the people pleaser and so not only did i come into adulthood really lonely and sort of unknowingly desperate for connection and like looking to fling myself onto a relationship regardless of how healthy that relationship was but i also had no idea what healthy connection looked like i was really used to situations where i was super tuned into someone else's needs and emotional state my first real boyfriend let's call him jack there were a lot of signs early on that he was manipulative but i missed every single one of them because i was so used to emotional manipulation He was a year younger than I was in school. So when I went off to college, he was a senior in high school. And when I got back for the summer, we were talking about getting back together and we were going back and forth. It was a whole thing. And I remember that um, sort of in the beginning of that, a girlfriend of mine who was a year younger than Jack, so she was a junior in high school, she told me that she and her boyfriend had been talking to Jack at school and her boyfriend asked him if he and I were getting back together. And Jack said... I don't know. She kind of got around a lot while she was at college. So I don't know if I want to touch that. So, in other words, after I'd gotten back from college and had already had sex with Jack multiple times, he was going around telling people, some that I hadn't, like I didn't even really know my friend's boyfriend, right? This guy that I don't even really know, that he didn't know if he wanted to date me. Because I had been slutty at college, which, first of all, however many people you sleep with is always fine. Who fucking cares? I had slept with one person one time during my freshman year of college, and I was getting slut shamed behind my back by the guy who'd been one of my very best friends and like high school sweetheart. So I confronted Jack about this and he started crying. He got really upset he started yelling at me and being like, this is so fucked up of you. This is so crazy. I've never done anything but love you. Like he never would say he hadn't done it, but it was suddenly he was the victim in the situation. He went on the offensive, which can be super effective as a manipulation tactic, by the way, he was a master manipulator and I was primed for that. So I did what I had always done. I soothed him. I told him he was great. Everything was fine. It would all be okay. The exact same way I'd done with my mom. And I remember that moment so clearly when he started crying. The feeling that I had was really familiar. I just wanted to get to the part where everything was okay. And I could get the connection. I was so desperate for again. Remember, this is a guy I thought really cared about me. And I was carrying this huge hole of loneliness, having never really gotten reciprocal connection before. So I was like desperate for the connection. I'm just trying to get back to the place where I can feel loved again. And the way I knew to do that, the way I learned to make things good again, when my mom was in breakdown was to deny my own needs and my own anger and attend to the other person's feelings. So despite the fact that him crying and yelling was weird and didn't make sense, despite the fact that my friend who told me this was a really good friend who had no reason to lie to me and the whole thing was corroborated by her boyfriend, despite the fact that this whole situation felt off for me intuitively, I fell right into the trauma bonding pattern I was familiar with, even though I've been violated I take care of the other person. I ignore the dysfunction. I have no boundaries and I get my need for connection met. And in fact, I remember thinking in that moment, he's lying to me because he feels embarrassed, but at least now he'll learn his lesson and know that he can't do it again in the future. Like I I rationalized why it was okay for him to lie to me in that moment so that I could just get to the part where everything was okay. So that's one way trauma bonding can look when you're involved with someone on the narcissistic scale. He was later diagnosed as sociopathic. So even though he was never physically abusive and he never was overtly abusive in the sense of like calling me names to my face or, you know, like telling me I was a piece of shit or worthless or anything like that. He was sort of covertly abusive because he was playing these mind games and he was manipulative. He was also the one who would go on to cheat on me egregiously about a month later, if you've ever listened to the betrayal episode. And by the way, when we finally did talk again, five years after that cheating fiasco, he told me that the reason he cheated on me was because he knew I was better off without him because he was so unworthy of me. And so he cheated on me to help me get over him and move on. So again, master of manipulation, making himself out to be a hero And like so selfless for cheating on me and definitely covertly abusive. But when you grow up with trauma bonding and you're accustomed to being violated and bonding afterward, and you're used to being hyper vigilant of someone else's needs and emotions while dismissing your own, and you're carrying this hole inside you that you urgently want to fill. It's really easy to fall prey to people who show up this way. So, That's one way abusive trauma bonding can look or trauma bonding with people who you know rank on the narcissistic scale. But sometimes trauma bonding can look like two people whose connection is based on trauma. So here's an example of that, that a friend of mine had years back. When I was living in LA, I had a really good friend and she was dating someone. She knew he wasn't right for her. She knew it wasn't the relationship she wanted. He didn't want to break up, but he also was sort of codependently attached to her as if he was addicted to her. No matter what boundaries she put in place with him, nothing made him stop obsessing over her. But every time she would put her foot down and be like, we have to stop this, we're done. I Like, I love you, but I don't want to be with you. Every time they would just end up getting back together. And what she eventually realized was that she had this deep rejection wound from her mom. And the fact that he was so um, sort of like needy and obsessive over her. It had two effects. On the one hand, on the conscious level, she was like, oh, fuck, this is bad news. This isn't healthy. This isn't what I want. I don't want to be in this relationship, right? But on the other hand, on the subconscious level, his obsession and neediness, it was like medicine to her rejection wound because he wouldn't take no for an answer. And that made her feel unconditionally accepted and safe. And even though... He wasn't who she wanted as a long-term partner. She found the situation irresistible and addictive because it soothed this rejection wound in her. Meanwhile, he also had a super deep rejection wound, and that had kept him from having healthy boundaries, right? Like he would take connection from her, however he could get it, even if she was like, this is a bad idea, we shouldn't be doing this, I don't want to be with you, but okay, I guess let's do it instead of him being like, you know what, I only want to do this if you're all in because I have feelings for you and I need to protect myself here. Instead of that, he would push her boundaries and get her to cave so that he wouldn't have to feel rejected by her. And she would cave because his persistence soothed her rejection wound and the situation would just repeat over and over again. So that's another example of how trauma bonding can look. There's no real abuser in that situation and no one's a narcissist in the equation per se. But the relationship itself is built on two wounds coming together and feeding each other rather than two people building a relationship on a healthy foundation with boundaries in place. That one was really tricky because they both genuinely loved each other a lot and were two really great people. It was just hell for both of them to get out of because there was a lot of compulsive behavior happening. Another way this can look is the classic anxious attachment, avoidant attachment relationship. That dynamic was at the root of the 10-year situationship I had with Howard, who I talk about on the pod fairly often because it sucked. Howard was super avoidant. My emotions made him really uncomfortable. He was super critical of me, very condescending. He would flirt with other girls in front of me right after we'd had sex. It was a nightmare. But what it did was it triggered my not good enough wound that I was already carrying from my relationship with my dad, if you'll recall my dad, right? Like the whole, she throws like a girl, just generally very um, critical of me and kind of treated me like shit. And in that relationship with him, I always felt like I had to prove myself in order to be worthy. He wouldn't just give me love and acceptance. So when Howard came along and was like super hot and cold with me one minute, he's telling me like, I'm really sexy and he wants me to spend the night. And then the next I invite him to a party and he's all over some girl right in front of me. Like I'm standing two feet away. Right. Right. It triggered that wound I carried around not feeling good enough. And instead of being like, get fucked, Howard, I'm out of here. I was like, maybe if I just work really hard and show him how smart and funny and talented I am, he'll be convinced that he loves me. So that's the wound I was bringing to the table that just was like I, I carried straight over from my woundedness with my dad. I can't really speak to what Howard's wound was, but I can imagine it might have been something like him also not feeling good enough, right? And combining that with misogyny, where men using women as sexual trophies gives them confidence and worth in the patriarchy, it might have made him feel like if he could convince me and literally whatever other girl was around to sleep with him, he would feel like he mattered or he was important or something. I mean... That also sounds a lot like narcissism to me. It sounds like the classic narcissistic supply and discard cycle, which don't even get me started on the parallels between narcissism and the patriarchy. But again, I don't know what his wound was, you know, because he was super avoidant. So we never talked about it. So that's all just conjecture on my part. But if I had to guess, I would say that we shared a wound around not feeling good enough that fed our 10 year cycle until I finally was like, in later days, I'm out of here. This sucks. I'm getting off the ride. So what's helped me with trauma bonding and how have I found healing? The first thing I want to say is that if you grew up trauma bonding with your parents, it's incredibly sticky to get into a place where you're showing up for healthy connection in your life. And that's in part because especially if you had a parent who wanted you to swoop in and save them, right? Like we talked at the top a little bit about parentification. I have two episodes on that, by the way. And if you grew up seeing a family member or members as victims because they framed themselves in that position when actually they were violating you, it requires incredible strength, right? Like incredible commitment to truth and drawing from deep inner authority that you were never taught to have. In fact, you were taught specifically not to have, to be able to decipher reality from make-believe, not only in your adult relationship with that family member, but also with other adults in your life. I got so used to tiptoeing around people's lies, people's manipulations, people's selfishness, people's lack of empathy toward me, that having boundaries didn't even occur to me. And ending relationships with people who showed up that way, that also didn't occur to me. If trauma bonding was part of your childhood, regaining faith in your truth and your needs is going to be imperative to getting back to healthy relationships. A key aspect of my experience with trauma bonding as a child was abandoning myself, betraying myself by relinquishing my connection to my own feelings and needs. And the truth of my experience, because the truth of my experience was that I was emotionally exhausted by my mom's roller coaster behavior. I didn't want to be around it anymore, but I made myself available to it again and again, because A, it was how we bonded and B, in my mom's reality, she was victim number one because of how terribly she'd been abused as a child. So I felt guilty and selfish anytime I contradicted that reality in any way. Also, whenever I told my mom that she'd hurt me, she would tell me I was attacking her, that I was ungrateful, that she didn't deserve this. So it really wasn't an option for me to disrupt the cycle of trauma bonding that we had by speaking my truth. The dynamic required that her feelings and needs always be placed at the center and mine be repressed and dismissed. There's another piece here that I think is really important to unpack. As we're healing and getting more comfortable with our needs and boundaries, it can feel really confusing to look earnestly at the behavior of the adults who trauma bonded with us in childhood. And actually, I think this act I think this goes for a lot of abusive relationships just in general, like, you know, with a spouse, with someone you're dating, a, a friend, a brother, sister, anything, but particularly these like, manipulation based relationships, and especially the ones we were part of as children when we couldn't decipher reality from illusion. And what I want to say about it is that for me, I would have realizations about my mom's behavior, particularly that it was abusive. And then I would hear a voice in the back of my head that was like, yeah, but she did XYZ amazing thing. Like she provided for me growing up. She paid for my college. She came to my rescue that one time when I got way too drunk and got stranded in Long Beach in nothing but a bikini, which is a whole other story. She like drove down there and picked me up and took care of me or like she stayed up late into the night when we were little making us Easter dresses that we loved and on and on. Right. Like, And I would use those moments where my mom really showed up for me to undermine the reality of these other moments where she was abusive. Like basically saying, well, she couldn't have abused me if she also did those other things. And I think the reason I did that was because it's hard to hold two conflicting truths together. My mom isn't a villain. And even recently I told her, you weren't a bad mom. You were a traumatized mom. And because you were traumatized and chose not to get help, you traumatized me. Sometimes... And I really think this is true. People are abusive fucking villains, right? They're sadists, they're cruel, they're pieces of shit. I I believe that's true. And other times, people who have abused us have also loved us and helped us and been generous with us. And when that's the case, it's incredibly difficult to trust the voice inside that says something in this relationship is fucked. Especially when we've been trained to see that other person as a victim and been trained to cater to their needs and feelings and whims and ups and downs, or even maybe not to see them as a victim, but to see them as the priority because they're so scary when we don't do that. If that sounds like part of your story, I just want to say, I see you, I get it. How can we call the person who, you know, worked 15 hour days to put us through college or whatever it looked like, abusive, abusive? It feels selfish and mean, even it feels mean of us. You might also go the other direction where you refuse to see the moments when a person who abused you also treated you with love because a rage, right? So much rage, which I fully believe in the need for sacred rage in the process of healing and setting boundaries, And also B, it probably feels dangerous to have compassion for people who have abused you because there's a part of you that wants to have those relationships back. And compassion could be this dangerous gateway for setting yourself up to trust them again, only to be disappointed and fucked over and heartbroken. But for me, part of the healing process is looking at the whole picture in order to reclaim all of myself. And it's also just a necessary part of being in integrity with myself and with the people in my life. It's really complex to hold two conflicting truths. It's much easier to say this person's a total piece of shit, or this person is totally safe and loves me. And this is just normal conflict between two adults. But if your experience was anything like mine, then the truth is somewhere between those two. And I just want to tell you, it's okay to say this person loved me the best they could. And that involved both wonderful moments and totally violating abusive moments and abuse is never okay. I won't make excuses for it and I won't allow it in my life any longer. Or this person loved me the best they could. And they are also not safe. This person loves me in the way they know how, and they're also not a person I can put my trust in. Just because someone can love doesn't mean they're safe to be in relationship with. I'm going to say that one more time. Just because someone can love doesn't mean they're safe to be in relationship with. Love on its own isn't enough, which I know like for me, it's like a a shocking reality. If a person can't help but be abusive, Either they're not someone you can have a relationship with at all, or you really need boundaries with that person. It's not about demonizing them. It's about unwaveringly advocating for you and what you need to thrive, not to get by, but to fucking thrive and thriving looks like being able to look at a person who has both loved you and abused you and say, I see all the things that you did for me and I'm grateful and you don't get to treat me that way period, under no circumstances, because all those kind things that you did don't justify abuse. And again, maybe in your healing process, that looks like cutting a person out of your life and maybe it doesn't. Maybe it looks like creating boundaries that make you feel safe with that person. It's totally individual to each one of us to know what you need to thrive. But in this process of fully coming into yourself and your knowing and the wholeness of your experience, I just want to say there can be tremendous grief because what we all really want is safety and a place to run to and a place where we belong unconditionally. And it's a loss to really get clear with that eagle eye That even though there has been joy and sweetness and maybe even love, we are not safe with these people. If the trauma bonding in your life happened in your adult relationships rather than childhood relationships, and you're like, fuck, I don't know what to do in this relationship because I know it's not healthy, but I also know we love each other. First, I would say you probably already do know, like I would check in to make sure you're not pretending that you don't just because it's uncomfortable to do that, right? We get really good, especially when we were raised around abuse, at lying to ourselves and ignoring our inner voices and gaslighting ourselves and being in denial. So I would question whether you actually don't know. But beyond that, I would say, based on my own experience, if you find yourself in a series of trauma-bonded relationships and you see it's a pattern of yours, or you're in one now and you don't know how to get on track... For me, the most important thing has been going inside and connecting with the wounded part of myself who keeps showing up for the trauma bonding. Is it the part of you that feels unlovable that keeps showing up? Is it a codependent part of you? Is it a rejection wound, a not good enough wound, an abandonment wound? One thing I do a lot when I get in contact with a wounded part of myself is I start talking to her. I'll ask her, how old are you? Because that clues me in on how old I was when I first got wounded in this specific way. Then I'll talk to that four-year-old, eight-year-old, 12-year-old Remy and ask her what she needs. She'll often say things like, I need to be held. I need to be seen. I need to know I'm safe. And then I do those things for her. Like I'll hug myself, literally. Like I'll wrap my arms around myself and squeeze really hard. And I'll tell her, like I'll be talking to her in my mind's eye and I'll tell her, I see you tell me everything you need to tell me. It's safe to tell me. And I'll just envision her letting all this shit out, telling me how scared and pissed and lonely she is. I basically reparent these wounded children inside me. I let them have their truth. I tune into their needs. I give them space to be really messy and show them that I'm safe. I recently tuned into a super deep wound from 12 year old Remy that was triggered by my dad. And I went through my photo album afterwards and found a picture of myself when I was 12 and I put it on my dresser. And it was so wild to look into these wide, innocent eyes and this sweet smile and like think back to how my dad would be so abusive with me. He was looking at that girl. He was looking at that sweet child and treating her that way. And now here I was looking at her as an adult And seeing how absolutely lovable and worthy and valuable she was at 12 years old, I was fucking adorable. I was so sweet, but I felt so flawed at that time in my my life because I was being abused. So that's another healing technique I can offer is to find a photo of yourself at that age and look upon yourself with loving eyes and show that inner child that they're so loved. I know none of that sounds as fun as like makeup sex with a person you have this magnetic trauma bond with. Believe me, I have 100% been there. But when you finally get to the place where you're like, okay, I can't keep getting back on this ride that fucking crashes and goes up in flames every single time, then maybe give your wounded inner child a call and see what's up. It'll really start to shift some things in your life from the inside out. Or it did. It did for me. Okay. Lindsay, how are you doing over there?
0: Hey, yeah. Thanks so much for sharing your experiences. That was really important.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I'm really excited to get into all of this with you. You and I kind of chatted the other day and I was like, oh my everything you were telling me I was so many light bulbs were going off. So let's dig in. Let me ask you this first question. Like I have kind of been talking about trauma bonding can look different ways. Sometimes it involves a narcissist sometimes a covert narcissist, other times it involves people who aren't necessarily abusive, but they're entrenched in unhealthy patterns themselves. Can you kind of walk us through the different ways that trauma bonding can look or show up?
0: Yeah, so you've mentioned um, the avoidant anxious attachment and that's kind of this push pull dynamic. So as we know, narcissism is on a spectrum and there's a healthy level of narcissism that we all need. However, when it gets to the other end where it becomes pathological, then that's where we see the kind of narcissist and path relationships that we're talking about for trauma bonding. So we see them in a non-pathological way in terms of the avoidant anxious attachment or the push-pull dynamic. Dr. Seuss has this quote where we find another person whose weirdness matches our own weirdness and we call it love. I believe that we find someone else whose pattern fits with our pattern lock and key. And we call it love or chemistry. And so sometimes this amazing, intense chemistry that we can find with somebody is no more than seeing this unhealthy pattern unconsciously in another person, and knowing that they can dance the same dance steps that we already have learned throughout our entire life. Hmm. So As we know, narcissism and all of these things exist on a spectrum. There's a healthy level and then there's narcissistic traits and then there's narcissistic personality disorder, which is kind of the clinical diagnosis of it. You can see any of these spectrum of unhealthy relationship patterns. One of the biggest things is just being self-aware and really identifying, okay, what's going on, kind of taking a step back and seeing it for what it is, the whole picture, kind of like what you were talking about before. Relationships don't exist in black and white and extremes. It exists in the entire picture. And that can be really tough sometimes, especially if you have an unhealthy template for relationships that we learned during childhood.
1: Yeah, especially I think like the narcissistic empath connection is really hard. And I think that one, especially if you were raised around it, you're so used to it that it that like taking a step back, like, I remember one time, uh I was seeing I had a mentor when I was in Al-Anon many years ago. And I had had this experience where my mom and my I was in my 20s, my mom and my sister went a huge fight. And it had something to do with my sister's car. And my mom was supposed to bring the car but she didn't bring the car and they were fighting about it and it was like a Friday night I had plans but I was like stop fighting give me the keys I'll go I'll go get the car I'll have someone come with me and drive my car back and I'll go get the car and and bring it and I remember my sponsor being like why did you do that and I was like what do you mean like to me, I had done something really great. I had fixed the situation. Everyone stopped fighting. I was the hero. Everyone was, you know, like I brought the car. There was no, like, what do you mean? Why, what do you mean? Why did I do that? And she was like, didn't you have plans? And I was like, yeah, but, and she was like, I was like, yeah, but, but I gave them up because I like did this really nice thing. And she was like, nice to who, you know, it wasn't nice to you. It wasn't nice to your plans. You had something else planned for the night. And so I think like that process of if you if you are used to being the empath around narcissists and you're used to being the people pleaser and the fawner someone really has to interrupt your thought process and be like yo this is unhealthy this is a really unhealthy pattern so yeah I think taking that big step back and like getting a perspective getting an outside perspective can be critical
0: yeah, and kind of like what you talked about with your relationship with your mom, it it sounds like you had to make sure that she's okay in order for you to be okay. Mm-hmm. And as children, we don't have a lot of agency obviously to take care of ourselves and to get our needs met. So they have to survive by making sure parents are okay. And that might mean like it sounds like it did with you hiding your own authenticity and abandoning yourself and your experiences and your feelings or your plans in that example, in order to make sure that everything is okay, Right. so that you can feel safe and secure, even for a moment.
1: Yeah, I think a huge part of healing from, I mean, certainly being raised around narcissism, but also being raised in trauma bonding experiences is reclaiming who you are, because you do lose a lot of that you lose who you are when you're constantly focused on someone else, which sort of brings me to my next question. Can you talk about the different ways that trauma bonding can look with parents or caregivers in childhood and like how that impacts attachment style?
0: Sure. So trauma bonding can look like a number of different ways. It can be, you know, kind of like what you talked about, A child being parentified and taking care of their parent to make sure that everything's okay, not feeling seen or heard or appreciated for their own experiences and their own life goals and situations and who they are. Or it could look like perhaps a child who has a sibling who has a lot of stuff going on. So they have to be like another parent for their sibling and they are on the same line with their parents. But regardless, I think that we learn about ourselves and the world around us and how to have relationships by our dynamics with our parents or our environment growing up. So if we learned that we have to take care of other people in order for ourselves to feel safe and secure and to have these positive experiences, then that's what we're going to be used to in our adulthood, which leads to toxic relationship dynamics and feeling like some people need to fix certain things or need to take care of someone else at the expense of themselves and abandoning themselves. So our childhood dynamic with our parents or our primary caregiver really creates this template of how to see ourselves, how to understand our worthiness or our lovability or our intelligence or how valuable we are. And also how we can relate to other people and the world around us. And sometimes it really results in needing to unlearn certain coping strategies like fawning, like you mentioned, or people pleasing and relearn things that are a little more adaptive as adults, because the things that once worked for us and helped us survive as children aren't really the things that are always going to help us have healthy attached adult relationship dynamics.
1: Yeah. In fact, they can be like the thing that prevents you from having healthy adult relationships.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: And so would you say in terms of attachment style, is is there any correlation between trauma bonding as kids with our parents and then like having a certain specific, like a specific attachment style or anything like that?
0: I think what you're asking is um, how our relationships with our parents and caregivers impact our attachment style. Is that right?
1: Well, yeah. And specifically through the lens of trauma bonding, like if we were trauma bonding with our parents as kids, does that show up in a specific way in terms of attachment style later down the road?
0: Definitely. And of course, it depends on the kind of trauma bonding that people have. And it's all kind of... um, unique to the individual and the family dynamics. And there's a lot of different factors that go into it. But what we do see is that these trauma bondings or these dynamics with our parents and our caregivers really do set the stage for our entire lives. Um, These attachment styles, they're, they're pretty consistent throughout our entire lives, unless we do something to disrupt that, that attachment style, or that way of being something big, whether it's, going to intensive therapy or really taking a good, hard look at ourselves, it's it's something that remains consistent and will play out in every single one of our relationships, whether it's friendships or work environment or romantic relationships, which we're talking about today. We can kind of see glimmers of the exact same dynamics and the same ways of being in our current relationships and our current life experiences, as we did with the original dynamic and trauma bonding or pattern of relationships.
1: Can I just ask, I think it's so fascinating that you said um, there are all kinds of ways that you can trauma bond with your parents as a kid. I think I I described one that maybe, maybe is common or maybe isn't, I have no idea. This cycle of like, you're screaming at me, you're threatening me. Now you're crying and I'm soothing you, or you're screaming at me, you're threatening me. And now we're laughing together. Are there, are there other sort of like
0: typical ways it can look? So typical is tricky because no one is necessarily typical, but yes, of course, there's the kid who maybe grew up with, a single parent who became like a partner versus a kid. They help their parent make decisions and, and kind of take on that partnership role. Or, or like
1: if they were like lonely or sad, they use the child as a confidant, like that kind
0: of thing. Yes, exactly. So it can take a number of different forms. That's so interesting, because what I'm realizing as we're talking
1: is that there's this link between trauma bonding and spousification and parentification, which I didn't Quite catch before when I was thinking about this, but it sounds like there's a, there's a lot going on there. Like there's a, a deep relationship between the two.
0: Yeah. And I mean, if you think about it in terms of the narcissist and empath, oftentimes the empath is trying to fix or help or improve or have this optimism for the narcissistic individual that they can change and that they'll be different And this cognitive dissonance that comes up as one of the significant factors for a victim in these kind of relationships. And that's very similar to these kind of dynamics that we're talking about in childhood, where a kid is like, wait, I'm a kid. Why am I making such intense parental decisions? Or wait, I'm a kid. Why am I taking care of you when you just hurt me? Um, it comes up in very similar ways.
1: Yeah. It's so like I, when I think back on that experience that I talked about with, who I'm calling Jack, who like basically got busted for calling me a slut, and then immediately goes, Why are you doing this to me? kind of thing. And the cognitive dissonance of me telling myself, I know he's lying, but I'm just going to soothe him. I'm going to comfort him because I think he's learning his lesson right now and he won't do it again in the future. And then I just get to have the connection that I want right now. Yes that is such a learned behavior that is like, you know, where you just learn to lie to yourself and to prioritize the connection over yourself. I think maybe that's like one of the common denominators in trauma bonding, maybe.
0: Yes. And so it's like, we'll take the snack when what we really need and crave and desire is the full meal of connection, but we'll take whatever we can get.
1: Yes. Oh my God. It reminds me of my friend the other day when we were, I was talking about how, and I've said this before on the pod, but like, you know, when I was growing up, my dad was like, here are two crumbs, like you're welcome Two whole fucking crumbs. And so then when I grew up and started dating and a guy was like, yeah, well, here are five crumbs. I was like five crumbs fuck yeah and I was telling my friend that and my friend was like yeah fuck that you want a guy who's a fucking chef like he is he's bringing out the lasagna he's bringing out the fucking endless salad he's you know like tiramisu I guess in in this scenario this man is Italian I don't know but anyway (laughs) like it's shifting away from like I'll just take whatever I can get because I'm so lonely in my case it was this like I've never known what it feels like to be seen and loved for all of me. So like, I'll just take whatever I can get into like, no, I get to be seen, I get to have needs, I get to be pissed, right? Like that, that healing journey of coming into I matter, (laughs) essentially.
0: And and it really is such a tough journey. And it takes such a toll on people. And there's, like you mentioned before, this grief process and this loss that your parents or your partner will never, ever change. (sighs) And it it can be really heartbreaking. But you know, as you talk about this, it makes me think about uh, what you mentioned with your dad earlier about how he would write you these letters. And there's kind of this difference between how he is in person versus how he is in these letters, and how there's always the hope that if you can just figure it out, then everything would be okay, he can have that communication with you in person. And in healthy relationships, those breadcrumbs and those moments of care and love and authenticity and intimacy aren't just breadcrumbs. They happen and and these hard conversations are normal and natural and important in a relationship. But one of the things that maybe you learned from your dad's experience is, you know, this doesn't have to happen in person. We don't have to have that intimate, connected, authentic experience where it's a two-sided relationship that we're both in person talking together. It can be this one-sided kind of, here's the writing and here's what I'm feeling and you don't get to respond and have this connection. So any little moment, of something that's similar to that connection piece you hold on to and you covet like nothing else when really you want the whole pie.
1: Oh my God. That was so, that's so accurate. That's so true. And it also made me kind of wonder maybe if anyone else has ever experienced this thing. Cause I know a lot of people, maybe they have a parent or they live with a single parent and their connection with their other parent is like through letters or email or whatever. I wonder how it sets us up in the digital age for dating where like, for example, I dated someone who would send me a bunch of memes and he would like text me all this really long stuff, but he wouldn't really respond to me. Mm. It was like all about him in these text messages. And I never realized it until later, but he didn't ever want to talk on the phone. He just Mm. wanted to text and he would text like a ton of shit. Like I knew He was sitting down and like at his computer, like writing me these long texts for hours and hours. But it was as I'm hearing you talk, it's making me realize the connection between the two of why that felt like connection to me, even though it was so one sided because it really echoed that experience with my dad where he would open up to me through letters, but was never talking to me about me, was never asking me what my experience was. It was just really he was like, I'm really sad and lonely And I'm projecting that onto you, but it's actually about me. Mm -hmm. Well, all of this sort of brings me into my next question, which we've sort of already gotten into, but I'm curious about how trauma bonding with parents or caregivers as children impacts our adult relationships. And like, does it set us up for trauma bonding in our adult relationships?
0: So yes and no. Um, Of course, there's always room for growth. I believe that most people can grow and change but it takes very hard work. But yeah, you know we we have these patterns and ways of being that are pretty unique to us and they are unconscious and we don't have to think about them. So in times of stress or in times of need or in times of oh my god I just need a breadcrumb of connection, we'll revert back to those ways of being. So maybe you revert back to, okay, I just need to help you and fix you and make sure that everything's okay and avoid all of the hard shit that just happened and avoid all of the sadness and fear that I just felt with you. So that right now I can enjoy what we're experiencing in this moment. So we kind of know how to dance that dance. However, there are also times in a lot of research that shows that I think it's like, 63% of people that get involved in this narcissistic toxic dynamic actually don't have a history of codependency or adverse childhood experiences. They have these amazing super traits that are also very common in a lot of parentified children or people that have gone through PTSD or really tough childhood toxic trauma bonds. And these traits are like high conscientiousness, collaboration, agreeableness, optimism about human behavior and a belief that people can change, believing in trust and cooperation and loyalty and tolerance. These just come hardwired in some people. So when they see someone who they have a trauma bond with, like a narcissist, for example, they bring out all of these things of who they really are but the narcissist will kind of feed on that. And these beautiful qualities, whether it's a byproduct of trauma in childhood or whether it's a byproduct of someone's personality gets used against them. Wow! And it creates this repetition compulsion where somebody is like, okay, but I didn't figure it out early on in life, or I want to really stick with this and figure out how to fix this relationship so that we can finally be happy in partnership. I'm just going to stay with it and hope that they will finally learn, that they will finally change, like you were talking about with your ex. Maybe he's finally learning. He's crying about how hard it is and all this stuff. Maybe he's finally getting it. And unfortunately, for these individuals who do have narcissistic personality disorder or pathology, it's hardwired in their brains to not be able to change.
1: I just want to make sure I'm clear. So, 63% of people. Of the empaths who get involved with narcissists, essentially they had a healthy childhood experience, but because they have these really beautiful traits like loyalty, optimism, trust built into them they are. They fall prey to narcissists because the narcissist will feed on that. And then a narcissist starts showing narcissistic qualities and then those people will think, oh, you know, like I think they can change because I'm optimistic or like, well, I want to be a loyal partner and they're just going through a hard time. So is that, am I getting
0: that right so far? Yes. So there's this cognitive dissonance that develops like we were talking about earlier where it's like, I love this person but also they're doing this thing that really doesn't align with my core beliefs and values. And I'm behaving like it's okay. Mm -hmm. So for example, if let's say that one of these super trait individuals really values monogamy, But you stay with your narcissistic partner who's been unfaithful. It really creates this cognitive dissonance because your actions and hope that they'll change and that they've learned their lesson and your loyalty is not aligned with who you are. So this dissonance increases and then you have this like cognitive paralyzation where decision making is harder and you get into a fog and it's hard to see straight and you just kind of feel stuck.
1: Whoa! And what's so interesting about you bringing in the cognitive dissonance in that dynamic is if you grew up with trauma bonding and parentification, as we already kind of talked about, you have already learned to abandon yourself. Yes. So it's real. It's especially easy to kind of just be like, "I don't even know who I am anyway." Cause, like I've always been focused on the other person. So you just can really easily fall back into that.
0: Yes. It's already a groove in your personality or in your character, in your pattern and way of being with other people.
1: Ooh, that is so intense. And then also you mentioned a statistic about how many, like the percentage of narcissists that are men or women, what was that statistic that you said? Cause I thought that was really interesting.
0: So the majority of um, literature and research focuses on findings that are mostly males as the narcissist. And they find that male psychopaths outnumber females by three or four to one.
1: Whoa, three or four to one. So for every female, well, this explains a lot about true crime. <laughs> <laughs> I listen to a lot of true crime and it's like always the husband. But so, okay, so for every one woman who's a psychopath, there are three or four men who are psychopaths.
0: Yes, according to research. It's very, very fascinating. And I think that this is probably a whole other podcast topic. But I think that women are socialized in a very relationship oriented way, whereas men are stereotypically socialized to be more independent. Right. And so women will oftentimes focus more on the relationship and how can I make everything okay? And how can I communicate. Whereas men sometimes will focus on what's good for me.
1: Right, right. Culturally speaking, that's the messaging that we give women versus the messaging that we give men. And of course, we don't have enough uh, research right now to know what kind of messaging non binary folks are getting right in all of this. But um, wow, that's, that's really fascinating. Okay, so let me ask you this. Outside of relationships, how does trauma bonding impact our mental health? What other what other how else does it like leak out into our lives as adults?
0: So it can show up in terms of a boss and an employee. It can show up from friendship relationships. Any kind of power dynamic is prime for these kind of trauma bond relationships, It also has a huge impact on our executive functioning skills. So if somebody has a prime to be able to fall into this trauma bond dynamic as the empath, let's say, your executive functioning skills, the thing that helps you to organize information or helps you to focus or helps you to to reason or see reality in some ways, be less impulsive, it can really get triggered very quickly because again, that groove is already carved out. So oftentimes, whether someone has childhood family trauma or not, after being in a relationship, whatever kind, with some narcissist or psychopathology, 75% of these survivors come out with PTSD or complex PTSD, but 100% of them in research come out with cognitive dissonance. Whoa, 100%. Yes, according to research by Sandra Brown, and she mentions the neurological component of this chronic and pervasive long-term dissonance effects, it really impacts the brain just like PTSD. It affects your sleep, and your brain kind of stops working, and you're in this fog, and you're kind of stuck, lost in time, unable to make a decision and how to get out of it. And It starts to impact your self-esteem.
1: Wow, that's really heartbreaking. That's so painful. Um, And so I guess that's what you meant in terms of the symptoms then. Yes. Yeah.
0: It creates this fog and this cognitive dissonance where it's like, well, I wouldn't have my best friend engage in these behaviors, but I'm still doing it. So what is wrong with me that I'm still allowing this to happen? And then they start to question everything about themselves and everything about their personality. And it's hard for them to find a grounding spot. And it's, it's really tough. That's actually,
1: that feels really validating for me because I think for a long time, I would get really angry at myself for going along with things that didn't feel right to me, especially in sexual relationships. It wasn't, I wasn't someone who like gave into peer pressure around like smoking or drinking or anything like that. And, you know, I was in a lot of ways, I was very driven and like focused, but When it came to romance, I would do things that didn't feel good to me. And then I would like have a meltdown afterwards and not understand what was wrong with me. And it actually feels really validating to hear that, that that, like, I truly didn't have a choice. This is what happens 100% of the time. And... It kind of reminds me of that definition that I gave at the top where it's like, this is a normal response, as we can see, because it's 100% of the time, it's a normal response to a chronic, terrifying stressor. It's not that there's something wrong with me. It's that these situations I was placed in with these specific types of personality traits, they were, it was ongoing
0: terror and stress. Yes. And- I mean, I don't know your dating history per se, but if you have been dating narcissists or people with very high narcissistic traits, oftentimes there's these stages, right? So they love bomb where you're amazing and they promise all these future focused things and they spent a great amount of time with you. And then there's this twinship where they begin to mirror the patterns of who you are they're luring and mirroring and love bombing. And it confuses even highly conscientious women with or without trauma backgrounds. And then you get into the space where you're off your game. And oftentimes kind of like what you were just talking about, the narcissist will push these women outside of their comfort zones, normally sexually, and she will try new things and she'll say yes to that. And then she'll say yes to something else and yes to something else. And all of a sudden you're in this place where it's like, who am I? I normally would not be in this place, but maybe they feel like they want to please the person or like they want to fix the person. And if I just do this, then they'll love me back and everything will be okay. And they just get more and more compliant because they're out of their comfort zone. And then they get very confused and they're like, this isn't who I am. It's hard to own your truth. It kind of evaporates at your core self. And once you're in the relationship, all of that shit stops and everything switches. And then the discarding process starts and there's distance. And oftentimes this person will look for their next quote unquote victim. Wow. But what you mentioned about the, the sexual relationship and getting out of your comfort zone or trying something different, it's very normal.
1: Whoa! And then, well, so one quick question I have is, I was listening to you talk, and you were talking about the mirroring phase. Is mm-hmm. that where um, the person with, you know, the narcissist in the dynamic will m-
0: like, oh, I like that too. Oh, I love doing that too. Is that what mirroring is? Yes, exactly. It's uh, this twinship mirroring where you feel so seen and so heard and like you're so aligned on so many different ways. And it's this magical experience that in very healthy, I mean, ideal and whatever, perfect, no one's perfect, but perfect childhood experiences children get from their parents Mm. and every parent, everyone, I think does the best that they can with everything that they have, whether it's a trauma history, whether it's whatnot, but This twinship and this mirroring usually happens in childhood. But if we don't get that, then the narcissist comes along and gives it to us. And we think that this is true love. And this person knows me more than I've ever felt seen and known and understood. Wow. And it's a beautiful experience, but it's fake. Yeah, it's a lie. (laughs) It's a lie. Yeah. And oftentimes the narcissist does Know what they're doing. Of course, there's levels, and some people are more aware than others. But they sometimes know that this is a means to an end.
1: God, wow. the The answer to this is probably no. But is there a way to know if a per like are there like narcissist red flags in the beginning before you've invested?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's narcissist red flags, of course. I mean, if the relationship kind of feels like a roller coaster, if you Can really get attuned to yourself and understand your own patterns and what your hook is. You can't protect yourself from what you can't see. So, you really need to know yourself and what it is that this person might be latching onto. And part of that is also being like, okay, I'm with this person and all of a sudden I'm feeling this pull to fix or to help or to change or to please them. So, it's getting to know yourself. And how you feel around someone else. Um, And also seeing if you you set a boundary with this person, how do they respond? Do they respect it? Or do they kind of push? You have these super traits that are absolutely beautiful. But at the same time, can be turned against you. So what happens when you have too much empathy, too much tolerance, too much optimism, and it's not reined in? these toxic individuals come and it's like yummy food for them. And so you have to become alert to the fact that these great traits can be used against you. And where do your boundaries lie?
1: Right. Wow. It's so good to know. It's so heartbreaking and sad and frustrating and so important to know that like these things that can, um, that it truly can lead you to such a beautiful life can also be used against you if they fall into the wrong hands or wow. Yeah. Well, so, okay. So let's, let's get to the healing part. How do we start the healing process when trauma bonding has been part of our story? Like what are the foundational things we need to start moving our lives in a new direction?
0: So first off I'm a big believer in no contact. And of course it's highly personal to, to grow and, and to heal. And there's no one size fits all solution. But I think giving yourself permission to communicate and step away is very, very important. You know, you asked earlier about what are some of the signs that we can see before we get involved in, with somebody. I totally non-judgmental. I don't really care when someone has sex with someone else, you know, as long as everyone's agreeable and consenting and feels okay about it. But with some of these people having sex, especially for women, releases three times more oxytocin than it does with men. So there's this bonding hormone and that can create cognitive dissonance. So after you have sex with someone, there might be this anxiety of like, okay, how do I keep them? Or overlooking certain things because you're already bonded with them. So I think that if you're prone to trauma bonds, it's helpful to wait until you know someone and their patterns. And that can also be a part of healing. Maybe part of healing is that you take some time off and you get to know somebody before you become intimate with them. Because some people know that if they become intimate with somebody, they attach very quickly. And you want to make sure that the person that you're attaching to is quote unquote worth it. Another thing that's important in healing is to understand your patterns and your past experiences and check in with how you feel being with somebody, understand why you feel like you need to help someone or be there for someone and where that core trauma comes from. And it's important to understand that even though that core trauma And those things that were helpful with that core trauma, like for example, you trying to make everything okay and ignoring some of the pain and the anger and the sadness just to be in that moment, that was a survival thing. You needed that. And as an adult, you have an ability that you didn't have as a kid, which is to walk away from these experiences and to put up your boundaries and to say, this is not okay with me there's a difference between being needy and having needs. I think the needy part of that is like, please just be different. Here are all the ways that you can be different. Please just do this. Constantly having to ask someone to change or ask someone to hear you or ask someone to see you. That's a trauma bond versus having needs where it's like, Hey, I need this from you. And if they show up and meet that need, it's very different than being needy. And I think that especially if we have trauma bonds needs, and neediness get very confused internally. So really teasing all of that apart is important. Also trying to really understand these patterns that we have in our lives and the attachment that we have from childhood and seeing these patterns and taking like a really hard, fucked up, emotional, deep look at ourselves to Okay, what it what am I contributing to this? And that's a really shitty thing to look at, and a really hard thing to admit to yourself. But if you're used to fixing people and you're used to being a people pleaser, there's kind of a little bit of like almost a dopamine hit that you get when somebody says that they've changed. When somebody says that, yes, you've helped me. You're amazing. Like the narcissist can oftentimes say to the empath, and that really can feed into who we know ourselves to be and it's so sad because oftentimes it just isn't a long-lasting change i think another thing would be something that you mentioned earlier which is don't live in someone else's potential make sure you live in the reality people aren't good or bad we're all of it we have good parts of ourselves and things that we would love to change and it's important not to look at just one or the other. It's the full picture.
1: Yeah, that has been such a huge piece in my growth has been, yeah, getting out of the cognitive distance, dissonance and out of lying to myself about people and who they are and what they're capable of. And just being like, no, <laughs> like, I don't have to think that you're the devil, but. Either like you're abusive or you lack empathy or you're emotionally immature, right? Or whatever it looks like. And also being that way with me too, knowing, I love that you say like, you need to know what your own sort of pitfalls are before you go out bonding with people, because there are things about you that if you don't know that they're there, they can get, they can get used also, or Um, they can cause you to fall into these traps. And so I like the whole thing about getting so honest. It's so simple, but man, what a game changer to get really fucking honest. Like, do not look away. Do not turn away when you have a weird feeling about someone or something's not working or it's just off. It's like, keep your gaze forward, (laughs) What is this thing that's not working and address it? And I know that for me growing up around trauma bonding, where my attachment mode looked like not speaking up when things weren't working and things were traumatic, it can feel like it requires every single fucking fiber of your being to say, Hey, I didn't like that. Like it feels so scary And sometimes the way we do it can be imperfect, right? Like I know things that I've done in the past have been like, I won't tell the person, but I'll tell someone else and then it gets back to them, right? And then they'll be like, oh, Remy's so, you know, passive aggressive or she's a backstabber or whatever. But it's, it's taken me time to get my courage up to where I could tell someone face to face, like, hey, I don't trust you because of, because you did X, Y, Z or like, hey, this really feels shitty when you do this, like, or. And, and if it keeps happening, I have to walk away or like, Hey, one that I've been thinking about recently is like, when I know people are lying, but I don't want to tell them that I know, because I'll, I know that they'll freak out. So instead I just, I'll be like, well, I know that they're lying. I don't have to confront them about it. Like all the weird things that we do because it was never safe in these trauma bonding relationships from childhood to just be like, Hey. I have a boundary. Hey, I have a need. Hey, I don't like something, right? The, the um, process of like getting back into our core selves and just being like, this is what my truth sounds like. And if you don't like it, that's okay with me.
0: And oftentimes, you know, speaking for those experiences of children who go through these traumas, trauma childhoods, it's hard to trust your gut. Mm-hmm. And you uh, you constantly question yourself because maybe you had to literally make yourself wrong in order to survive. And so as adults, we gaslight ourselves and we can sense that something might not be right, but then we're like, oh, okay, well, I must be having a flashback or I must be having this trauma bond experience. Maybe I'm not seeing clearly this other person says that it's fine, so I'm going to trust this, this narcissist or toxic person in the relationship because they say they're not doing X, Y, and Z. It must be a me issue. Oh, my God. And that's so horrible because oftentimes, to be honest, a lot of kids that go through traumatic experiences develop this hypersensitivity and this almost sixth sense for better or for worse, of reading cues from other people. It's almost like this really strange psychic experience. And so sometimes we can see things that people aren't actually saying. And we have to check in with them because we're like, hey, I'm noticing that you said this, but I'm feeling this. Like, help me understand. But we are the first people to gaslight ourselves because we had to do that for survival growing up. And that feeds right into the toxic person narcissist where they will gaslight you and you're like, oh shit, they must be right because I can never trust myself. But the healing process is really learning to trust your gut and being like, okay, I'm feeling this for a reason. How do I tease apart if this is my past trauma, childhood, whatever experiences, or if this is happening right now? And it's so much easier said than done, but it's a vital part.
1: I can, I was like the, the amount of nodding I was just doing right now, like my head's about to fall off the swivel. I could not relate harder to the self-doubt to the constant questioning and the thinking, well, it must be me because they're saying everything's fine. I recently um, had a friend breakup where there was this dynamic exactly where I would be like. I would constantly say like this happened and this happened and it wasn't okay. And they would be like, actually you are not okay Mm -hmm. because of this thing. And then I would be like, Oh, 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 this is about me. Mm -hmm. And it was so easy to talk me out of my feelings because I literally, I had to have that trait growing up in my home. Oh, that's so helpful. And, and I think will resonate for so many people.
0: In these relationship dynamics, you try to explain yourself and you try to over explain sometimes and be like, well, this is why I thought this way. And let me tell you about this. Like, this is where that comes from for me. And these other people who maybe for whatever reason, maybe they're toxic, maybe they just don't get it. Maybe they're not self-aware. They can use that to manipulate you because the truth is over explaining is a trauma response.
1: Whoa, over explaining is a trauma response. Yeah. Because you think that you're a, that you're going to get in trouble. Mm -hmm. So you have to really explain so they understand. So they're not mad, but also you think there's a part of you that thinks you might be wrong. So you have to really explain it so so that you can prove to them that you're not wrong. Yes.
0: Yes. Cause it's not okay to be like, I'm mad. You have to prove why you're mad and why you're justified in being mad. But that also allows the other person to kind of poke holes in that story because you're over explaining. Whoa,
1: man, this has given me so much to think about. Lindsay, thank you so, so, so much for coming on. I feel like, yeah, I've just learned so much. If people want to contact you, how how can they get a hold of you?
0: they're welcome to go to my website at d-r-l-i-n-d-s-a-y-o-s-h-e-a.com.
1: Amazing. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on Insta at the Patrama Party or on my personal Insta at Remy's, R-E-M-E-E-Z. You can also email me at patramaparty at gmail.com. If you have a topic you'd like to hear covered, hit me up. And also, if you want to join the Patrama Party community, you can find us on Facebook. It's such a cool group of listeners. We check in with each other about the stuff we're going through and offer support and resources. So if you're into that, just search the Patrama Party and I'll add you. Speaking of support, if this pod has helped you and you have a minute, rate, review, subscribe. It really does help. And I read all the reviews. And if you'd like to support the pod, you can. You can give a dollar a month, $5, et cetera. I pour myself into this podcast. I put a ton of time and energy in. So if you're able and moved to, just go to podcasters.spotify.com forward slash pod, forward slash show, forward slash the Patrama party, and scroll down to the support button. You can also find the support option on Spotify. And until next time, baby, enjoy the party. Bye. The information provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only. None of the material presented is intended to be a substitute for psychotherapy, counseling, professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you need to speak with a professional,
0: find one local to you and reach out directly.